Hi, I'm George Boldarki, host of WFUV's Cityscape. I'm excited to be teaming up with the Brooklyn Public Library to bring you a special series about four communities that made Brooklyn the vibrant, diverse borough it is today. So from WFUV and the Brooklyn Public Library, this is Building Brooklyn. In our last episode of Building Brooklyn, we talked about Brooklyn's Chinese-American neighborhood in Sunset Park, which is centered around 8th Avenue. If you walk north on 8th Avenue, away from the epicenter of Chinese-American businesses, market stalls, and restaurants, eventually you'll get to 40th Street, between 7th and 8th Avenues, which also is called Finlandia Street. That first time I saw it, I was confused. What was Finlandia doing in a neighborhood that I knew of as predominantly Chinese and Latin American? Well, as it turns out, the street sign is one of the only remnants of a neighborhood once known as Fintown. I encourage them to get the street name changed. This is Robert Zasto. He's a native Sunset Parker and a Finn who grew up in and around the neighborhood in the waning days of its Finnishness. And I gave the speech during those festivities and I pointed to all those buildings and I, I remember being very expressive and pointing to all the buildings and saying, you see these buildings? Someday the Finns will all be gone and we won't have any of us left. And that sign is meant to remember, to remind people of what this neighborhood was. That street name on 40th Street remains the most obvious indicator. But as you walk around, you would see that a lot of the apartment buildings, about a dozen of them, are yellow brick and they have these entrances centered around courtyards. These buildings have a pretty unique story, and I should know because I actually live in one. Carissa, did you did you know that there was anything unusual about them when you moved in? Not really. When we first saw the apartment back in 2007, I just, you know, I knew it was in our price range, and I loved the light on the top floor. Were there Finnish people in the building? Were there flags flying everywhere or something? There was none of that. I think... The first clue I had was someone in our building who was older mentioned to me, oh, you know, we don't have any Finns left in the building. And that's when I started to learn more about it, right? How the Finnish community built these buildings at the beginning of the 20th century and actually left their mark on New York City's housing system. So in this episode, we're stepping back in time to tell you what the neighborhood was, Fintown. I'm Adra Ducey. And I'm Krissa Corbett-Kavoris. You're listening to Building Brooklyn, a special mini-series on Borrowed, the podcast from Brooklyn Public Library. Let's set the scene. It's the late 1940s in Brooklyn, post-war. You're coming home after your job making women's shoes, or perhaps chewing gum, at Bush Terminal. It smells like spring. Ahead of you, rising over the crest of the hill, are a cluster of pale yellow brick houses. Your grandparents helped build those buildings, and three generations of your family have lived in those apartments. The voices you hear around you as you trudge up the hill are speaking a collection of languages unique to this pocket of the city. Here's how Robert Sasto remembers it. Everyone, it was, everyone was Finnish around the place, either Finnish or Norwegian, Swedish, Scandinavian. I was born in 1947 in that co-op. And in those days, you could hear Finnish on the street. There were 30 co-op buildings around, surrounding Sunset Park. And there was the Finnish hall, there was the newspaper, and there was a tailor. 
Um, it was everything that you could imagine because they gravitated towards that neighborhood because they didn't have to learn English. Robert's family moved to Diker Heights when he was five, but his grandparents still lived in Finnish co-ops, and he spent a lot of his time with them. And particularly mumu, which is the Finnish word for uh, grandmother, and pop, which was we call papa. So it was mumu and pop, we called them. And they lived on the corner of 40th Street and 7th Avenue in a co-op building which had the nickname Giusela, which means tease, tea or teaser. And the, so we used to go there. They also had a courtyard. So we were there constantly all the time. Robert's memory is one of a big, gregarious Finnish social life full of dances and meeting halls and social clubs. They had. My mother was in the gymnastics club. Uh, my father played all the sports, and, and they were big on the dances. You have to imagine that there were hundreds of people going to the dances. And when I was a little kid, I would go with my parents. They'd take us into the, into the Amatra Hall. And there'd be, oh, it'd be wild party-like time. And there was a bar there, they'd be drinking. And then they'd go on, they'd be, and they'd be doing the, uh, the hoopa, they called it. It was like the tango. These social venues, the socialist clubs, the gymnastics clubs, the churches, this would be where Finns would find their footing, share resources and experiences in this new culture they found themselves in, but also where they'd keep the fabric of their own culture intact and their politics. Every community, there were two halls. There was always the regular Finn Hall and then the socialist, communist, left-leaning hall. There's sort of a, a running joke. If you see three Finns walking down the road, they're on their way to, you know, form uh, two church congregations, a uh, socialist club, a uh, sports, sports club. And within all of those things, there was often division. That's Joanna Chop, an archivist with the Finnish American Heritage Center at Finlandia University in Hancock, Michigan. We talked to her to get a bigger picture of Finnish life in America. She mentioned that politics and religion were not only a big part of Finnish American life, but also is what was fueling their immigration in the early 1900s. New York in the late 1800s was an immigrant town, of course. So what pushed the Finns to leave Finland was not dissimilar to other European migrations. Here's Joanna Chop again. So there was a lot of um, political upheaval for quite a long time. Add to that that there was a famine going on in the 1860s. For a short period of time, there was even the threat of conscription into the Russian military. So all of these things helped to fuel immigration. Chop also noted that though many Finns came to the United States to escape an unstable country in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there were Finns in America much earlier than that, as far back as the 1630s in New Jersey and Delaware in what was then called the New Sweden Colony. The oldest log cabin still in existence is in um, New Jersey, built by a Finn. Um, there was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence who could trace his ancestry to the New Sweden colony. So Finns have been in the U.S. for a long time. And here's where the connection to housing comes in, Adjua. The first log cabin is significant because Finns have been, for a long time, skilled carpenters and builders. So the Finns didn't just move to Sunset Park. They actually built it. Here's Robert Sasto again. So when they came here, 
they all picked up a hammer and they got a job. And then they decided amongst themselves to build the co-op buildings so that they could have a good apartments to live in. And they did it in their form, which was called, you know, which was the co-op form. Everybody would share equally, buy a share and have an apartment. Robert talked about where this came from, this cooperative building practice. It was baked into the fabric of life back in Finland, too. The Finns actually have a word for it. I, I think it's, I always mispronounce it, toku, toku, something like that. What it meant was, and they did this in Finland all the time, all the men would get together and they'd build a house, literally within a few days. And it would be a major community event. And the women would all get together. And at the end, they would all have a big party and eat and drink. And then the next time that someone got married or needed a house, they all went together and did it. They did it in the cooperative form. The Finns, especially in the U.S., if there was a chance to be cooperative, they took it. Joanna Chop again. There were cooperative bakeries, cooperative dairies. I think there was even like a cooperative uh, gas company. If you've lived in New York long enough, or if you read the real estate section of the New York Times, you know what a co-op is. It's a housing model where you buy a share in an organization in order to live in the building and contribute to its upkeep. In New York City, co-ops are an institution. Today, over half of all co-ops in the United States are in the New York area, and about three quarters of apartments in Manhattan are co-ops. But very few people know that some of the first co-ops in the country were in Sunset Park, and they were built by the Finns. In the first decade of the 20th century, a few dozen Finnish builders and tradespeople formed the Finnish Building Association and began buying land and building single-family homes, which were then purchased at cost by Finnish families. By the teens, the Finns started thinking bigger. In 1915, 16 Finnish families scraped together $500 each to purchase a lot on 43rd Street between 8th and 9th Avenues and build a handsome four-story apartment building that became known as Alku, which means new beginnings in Finnish. Completed in 1916, Alku became the very first nonprofit housing cooperative apartment building in America, and it is still standing today. At their height, there were more than 30 Finnish co-op buildings, all centered on the blocks around the park itself. They were radical for how luxurious they felt in a working-class neighborhood. In 1935, a reporter noted in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle that there were saunas in some of the early Finnish co-ops and that they were so well-built that they, quote, look as if they would be standing after whole areas of speculative apartments have collapsed. These have withstood the test of time. You have tall ceilings, big windows, uh, spacious rooms. They weren't your tenements that you saw on the Lower East Side or even in Brooklyn. I mean, they were well built. These were real carpenters who built these buildings. Robert mentions the Lower East Side and the tenements. And this is important too, because what the Finns did is created a model for working class immigrants to live in their own owned homes, to be free of rapacious landlords or crowded in unlivable conditions, but also a model which was sustainable for the community. 
Right, because these buildings were non-profit housing cooperatives, which meant that when a member who lived in Alku or Alku Toinen or any other Finnish co-op was ready to move on, they would be selling that membership back to the corporation for what they put in. And the co-op would then sell that membership to another owner. There was a really rich kind of leftist socialist tradition among the Finnish immigrant community in the United States um, in the early 1900s. This is Esther Wong, a writer in New York City who, a few years ago, received a fellowship from the Asian American Writers Workshop to cover Sunset Park. She wrote about the Finns in Sunset Park in an article titled Bread and Butter Socialism, A History of Finnish American Co-ops. We'll put a link to that in our show notes. According to Esther, the Finnish version of socialism was all about supporting fellow immigrants. It was about how can we support our families? How can we support our community? And the way that they did it was through the co-op model, right? You know, today we kind of see co-op models as an alternative, right? And one that people are really interested in. Can we apply the co-op model to create sort of these newer, new economies, right? That are less, less exploitative, that, that support communities that they're in, um, that support workers, right? And it was really interesting to me that this model had already been done, right? And quite successfully by groups of immigrants to the United States from Europe, not just Finland, right? But many different European countries. And, you know, it just made me think, what can we, what can we learn from what they did? The reality is that today, the co-ops that the Finns built and co-ops across the city are no longer a reliable option for working class immigrants who are looking to buy homes. They're too expensive. Market forces have just dramatically transformed what's possible in New York City, in, in most urban spaces for working class families. I, I just out of curiosity today, I looked it up the the cost of apartments in the the first Alku building, right? The the first building that was built by this immigrant community and the most recent apartment that sold, I think it was a three bedroom, one bath, and sold for more than six hundred thousand dollars. I can't imagine, you know, many working class immigrant families being able to to make that happen. Right. Um, being able to afford that. What I kind of took away, though, from my research and from writing the story is that the exact model that they employed probably wouldn't work today. But the fact that they were able to do it kind of, you know, it made me think there are if, if we just are creative. Right. If we have the vision, you know, there are ways to make truly affordable housing happen for people of all income levels. Um, We just have to have the will, right, and the idea. There are still cooperative grocery stores and other cooperative organizations that work for immigrants in New York City by keeping costs down and encouraging neighbors to help each other. Just look at the numbers of mutual aid groups in the city that popped up during the pandemic. A challenge we have for our listeners is to do a little research on whether there's a neighborhood group near you or a community bank, cooperative store, or lending system that encourages neighbors to support each other. See if there's a way you can help your neighbors. 
But to finish the story of the Finns, as with many immigrant communities, after a few generations, they moved on from Sunset Park. Here's Robert again. And this was taking place in the 80s. Uh, They were either dying off, moving to Florida, or the young were going away and not coming back. Today, there are communities of Finnish people, some of them still speaking Finnish, in Florida and the Midwest, but they're mostly gone from Brooklyn. Robert is trying to make sure that people living in Sunset Park today know a little bit about that history of the Finns and their cooperative lifestyle. Recently, we have plaques going up on some of the dozen remaining Finnish co-ops in my neighborhood. And I have been amazed at the positive response I've gotten from all the buildings, from the old Finn co-ops. All the people, particularly the young people, so appreciate the history and the significance. I think there is a trend toward people wanting to know more about their neighborhoods and the people who built it. Yes, exactly. And I think that's part of what I love about this story. The Finnish legacy can still be found here today, not only in the physical buildings, but in this community spirit and the cooperation that made it possible for an immigrant community to survive and flourish. It's something Esther Wong mentioned, too, that Sunset Park is still a place with very strong and very active immigrant communities. No matter... If you come from Finland, right, or you come from mainland China or Hong Kong, you know, there are places where you can move and you can establish yourself, which is not to say they're not without their faults. You know, Sunset Park for decades has been that place for successive waves of of immigrant communities. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And I hope that never changes. Building Brooklyn is a mini-series from Brooklyn Public Library's Borrowed Podcast. It's produced by Virginia Marshall with help from Fritzi Bodenheimer, Jennifer Prophet, Meryl Friedman, and Robin Lester-Kenton. This episode was written by Krista Corbett-Kavoris. Our music composer is Billy Libby. Borrowed is brought to you by Brooklyn Public Library and is hosted by me and Adjua Aduse. You can find a transcript of this episode at our website, Special thanks to Robert Sasto, Esther Wong, and Joanna Chop at the Finnish American Heritage Center at Finlandia University. Be sure to check back next week for the final episode of Building Brooklyn, the story of another neighborhood told in reverse, Canarsie. When I got to school there, I think I was a month or two in when someone told me that a black family had tried to move into Canarsie and gotten burned out the year or two before. For me, it was like, okay, watch yourself out here. I didn't want to be out there after dark. That's next time on Building Brooklyn. Hey there, WFUV listeners. We have a bonus segment for you this morning. Next week will be the last of our Building Brooklyn episodes. And we wanted to let you know that Borrowed, Brooklyn Public Library's flagship podcast, has three years of episodes for you to enjoy. And if you live in Brooklyn, or if you love Brooklyn, you know that you can always find us at any of our 60 library branches throughout the borough. So today we're bringing you three short stories about three places in Brooklyn that we didn't get to cover on this mini-series, Dumbo, Clinton Hill, and Brighton Beach. This bonus episode came out on our Borrowed podcast feed in March 2020, and we're replaying it for you now. Krista, what's your favorite place in Brooklyn? 
You know, there's this, um, my favorite place is technically the boardwalk in Coney Island, but it's it's partially that I like to bike down there and I take Ocean Parkway. It's a straight shot south from my neighborhood. And the road just ends right at the boardwalk. And it's the sort of not carnival end of Coney Island. It's the border between Coney and Brighton Beach. And so I like to just bike straight down there in the mornings in the summer, chain my bike to the fence on the boardwalk, and then just run out into the sand. It just feels magical. Sounds beautiful. Yeah. What about you? What's your favorite place? Uh, For me, I think it's got to be in Fort Greene Park. Mm -hmm. There's a monument. It's really tall. um, And it was featured in a Spike Lee movie called She's Gotta Have It, where there's like this dream dance sequence. And I've always dreamt of dancing there. So you haven't done it yet? No. You haven't memorized the dance routine? (laughs) I have not. (laughs) Brooklyn is such an enormous place. I mean, just from Fort Greene Park to Coney Island, it's probably like eight or nine miles. We've got 2.5 million people in those 70 square miles. So it's sometimes hard to feel like you've got a place to call your own. But, you know, for whatever reason, we do manage to make connections to certain places. And today on Borrowed, we've selected just three of those Brooklynites to tell their stories about connections to places in Brooklyn. Our first story comes from Karen Carboner. Hi, my name is Karen Carboner, and I am a Whitman scholar at NYU. Uh, We are at the Fulton Ferry Landing which is at the very end of Fulton Street on the Brooklyn side. Specifically, we're looking at the South Street Seaport area, which used to have tall ships, at least when Walt was here. Walt, meaning Walt Whitman. Of course, the city didn't look this way when he was looking at it, but I think it's not just the ephemeral things. It's not just the buildings that are here, but it's the water. This is one of the few places in Brooklyn where you can get close enough to touch the water. And there's something really enduring and internal about just like looking at the East River, this really beautiful deep river. So he would leave from where we're standing, 1855, 1854, 56, he was crossing all of the time. He was living in Brooklyn, working in the city, enjoying the opera and the theater and everything else, going up and down Broadway, uh, but really thinking about this spot as a point of departure. Right? And, as I said, a point of inspiration, because out of this spot comes the great New York poem, Crossing Brooklyn Ferry. It avails not time nor place. Distance avails not. Neither does that jet ski behind me right there. <laughs> I am with you, you men and women of a generation, or ever so many generations hence. Just as you feel when you look on the river and sky, so I felt. Just as any of you is one of a living crowd, I was one of a crowd. So you get this feeling, right, that he's like out there somewhere and he kind of saw in some way the same thing. Maybe not the exact same objects, but the spirit, which I guess I would just call the spirit of New York, right? Karen is part of the Walt Whitman Initiative, which is currently organizing to landmark Whitman's one-time home in Clinton Hill. That's where he finished the first edition of his most famous book, Leaves of Grass. We got to know Karen because we worked with her while we were filming Brooklynites Reading Aloud from Crossing Brooklyn Ferry during the 200th anniversary of Walt Whitman's birth, which was in 2019. So we're going to put a link to that initiative and we're going to embed the film on our website. Our next voice you may remember from an earlier Borrowed episode. Leosha Gorshkov was featured on Season 1, Episode 10, as an instructor at the library's first-ever University Open Air. For this interview, our producer went with him to Brighton Beach on a particularly windy day. 
So my name is Lyosha Gorshkov and now we are at Brighton, Brighton Beach at the heart of the Russian-speaking resettlement, mostly Soviet resettlement. I was forced to leave Russia because of persecution and I was a gay professor and I created queer studies in Russia and when in 2013 the propaganda law, propaganda of non-traditional values was passed and Putin signed it into the law, the secret services started rounding up a lot of people who were openly promoting non-traditional values, basically by default LGBTIQ. And I ended up in Brooklyn, in New York. When I came in 2014 and I started getting to know people and uh, most of them lived either Brighton Beach or Shipset Bay and they will recall some stories about homophobia which occurred here and they will tell all oh, those people insulted us or those people even physically threatened us and I was surprised we are in the United States how calm you can tolerate because you traumatized yourself again you survived that mistreatment in your countries and you come in here and you tolerate that so and I said we cannot we should do something about that but people did not take it seriously they said okay the better uh, way and strategy to move out of Brighton Beach and to live somewhere else to break the old connections to Russians but I said you can move but you cannot escape from yourself but it took me over like two years to uh, realize my to, to like to come to the idea of the pride since 2017 we are having our pride uh, Russian-speaking pride on the boardwalk which is about 40 minutes long so we march from Coney Island through the old boardwalk up to Brighton 15 and we have our rally right here on the benches before it was a kind of conspiracy of silence so nobody will talk about that people who are older and the LGBT they will live here but they always will be silent will be uh, not discussing the issues or they will be dismissing all mistreatment so people here lived in kind of um, bubble and the cave and now when we come here and they see oh it's publicly because uh, for after the first Pride, New York Times posted a lot of press, media coverage, and it exposed Brighton Beach as a homophobic resettlement. And all of a sudden they realized that something has changed in the attitudes. People uh, got to know Brighton Beach, not in the best spotlight. And it's not easy. It takes courage. It takes strength because sometimes people love to give up on that and just move and not taking that fight because I understand it could be very exhausting. So that's why what Brighton Beach does right now, it uh, acknowledges that we exist and we're here, we're in Brighton Beach and uh, Russian-speaking resettlement. We are not some strange uh, monsters or creatures. 2017's Brighton Beach Pride was the first ever Russian-speaking Pride event outside of Russia. It's been happening every May since then. Our last story comes to us from Clinton Hill. Leroy McCarthy met our producer on a very special street. I am Leroy McCarthy. We are standing at the intersection of St. James Place and Fulton Street in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn. And uh, this is where it was named recently Christopher the Notorious B.I.G. Wallace Way. Well, Biggie grew up on this same block, uh, St. James Place, at 226 St. James Place. This is where he come from, and um, a lot of his friends still live in the neighborhood. The neighborhood has changed a lot over the years, but even the supermarket, Key Food, he used to buy groceries there, so I thought it would be very uh, significant to have a street name for a worldwide figure um, in his home borough on his block. I was raised in Brooklyn. 
Like Biggie, I am a, a son of Jamaican immigrants. So uh, his music is very um, symbolic of Brooklyn. Brooklyn moxie and also substance. And so with that, I really appreciate the music that he put out, um, Ready to Die, Life After Death. You go around the world, people know who Biggie Smalls is and they know of Brooklyn partially because of him. Hip hop is um, going to be 50 years old. And so with that, um, there's an opportunity now to establish hip hop as a uh, indigenous New York City and American art form, which should be celebrated along the same line as jazz, as country music, as classical, and along that line. And so with that, um, getting these street names for these hip hop acts, one for Wu-Tang in Staten Island, which is already successful, and for the Beastie Boys in Manhattan, and uh, A Tribe Called Quest in Queens and Big Pun in the Bronx. So with all those um, locations, I'm trying to have the nearest location um, um, library to have a bookshelf dedicated to hip hop and the artist as well. So I think that it would inspire young people, tweens, to um, read about hip hop and perhaps gain something from it, or at least just read a book and put down a joystick. If you like this podcast, there's a whole lot more original audio content at Brooklyn Public Library. Explore BKLYN Youth Audio to hear teens from Brownsville and Canarsie talk about what matters most to them. You can also listen to BKLYN Community Audio and hear library staff interview creatives in the borough, as well as original stories from patrons living in family shelters. You can find both of those shows on your favorite podcast app or by visiting BKLYNlibrary.org slash podcasts and click on the Audio Projects tab.